invite you to open a Bible to the New Testament about halfway through to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. This is the fourth sermon in a series on God's creation of how he made us but also made marriage. We began a few weeks ago looking at Genesis chapter 1 and how God created everything out of nothing. And then he crowned the creation with the creation of man. Tells us male and female he created them in his image. And that we, made in his image then, are unique over all of creation. And he has given us a purpose to fill the earth and subdue it, to exercise dominion over the earth. Then we looked at Genesis chapter 2 and the creation of marriage. God said that it was not good for the man to be alone. And although Adam was in a perfect place, in a perfect relationship with God, there was something wrong. It was not good. So God performs surgery, he creates the woman, and he describes her as being a helper suitable for the man. And each of those words is very important. We saw the word helper as a military term in the Bible, which conveys the strong coming to the aid of the weak. So here God creates this helper, this complementary relationship. And they need each other, and the wife's place is to join her husband in for the purpose of exercising dominion over the earth with him. And then a couple of weeks ago, I believe it was, we looked at some of the verses in Ephesians chapter 5, and we saw how radical it is. And let's look at it again, beginning in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. As, uh, did I tell you chapter 5? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Does that sound familiar? Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. Shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray again. Father, may you give application, proper application, to our hearts now as we look at this radical message. In Jesus' name, amen. It was radical. It was radical in Paul's day. God's design for marriage is radical. It flies in the face of most cultures. 2,000 years ago, when the Apostle Paul wrote these words, a wife in that part of the world was regarded as property. It was thought by many that a woman did not even have a soul. She was useful, but she had no legal rights, could be divorced on a whim. Husbands certainly did not look to their wives for friendship or intimacy or love. They had mistresses for that purpose. Prostitution was not only rampant in the culture as a, as a whole, but it was also a major part of some of the cultic religious worship. That's why we have a number of places in the New Testament that have to address the subject of prostitution because it was so ingrained in the culture, in the religious culture. So into that environment, Paul writes what we just read. 
And when he writes, Husbands, you are to sacrifice, you are to cherish, you are to serve, you are to love your wife, people then would have reacted the way they react now, like, What? How radical? What planet is this guy from? Because there's no parallel in the literature of the day with this type of teaching. Paul was completely countercultural, just as we are today. You read these words today, and it's like, what? What planet is this guy coming from? I love it. I think it's awesome to be countercultural again, to be flying headfirst, head-on with the culture, and to be completely out of step with it, just like it was 2,000 years ago. So I am speaking as a pastor about Christian marriage. These sermons are not the culture as a whole, or if you do not profess Christ and you want to pick up some tips to have a good marriage, you're in the wrong place. I want to talk to you from the Bible about what is distinct about Christian biblical marriage. Now I'll show you one distinction, it's just how it's defined. This is the common definition for marriage in our culture. It came from Wikipedia, so that should be unquestioned, okay? Here it is. There were three paragraphs, and I'm going to give you the first sentence and a half. The definition for marriage. Marriage, parentheses, also called matrimony or wedlock, close parentheses. Marriage is a social union or legal contract between people called spouses that establishes rights and obligations between the spouses, between the spouses and their children, and between the spouses and their in-laws. It goes on and says the definition of marriage varies according to different cultures, but it is principally an institution in which interpersonal relationships, usually intimate and sexual, are acknowledged. Now, I know you just heard it for the first time, but did you notice some things that are uh, missing? Men... And women, no mention of covenant, no mention of permanence, no mention of only two. That's there. So whether it's polyandry, like in Tibet, where one woman has several husbands, or whether it's polygamy, like in Utah, where you have one husband and many wives, the common definition would be it's just so that you're recognized it's these people doesn't even say man and woman these people that have a legal contract so basically you get government tax breaks and health care benefits that's what it's saying i'm not trying to sound funny that's what it's boiling down to now what are we saying preacher are you saying let's go back to the 1950s ozzy and harriet june cleaver i loved her pearls even at supper all the time always had pearls in them Absolutely not. That's the last thing I hope we do. A number of us grew up here in traditional homes with traditional marriage. And I'm going to tell what I mean by traditional in a minute. But it was not biblical marriage. It was not Christian marriage. And so my purpose is to teach about biblical marriage, Christian marriage. And let me give you another definition from the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. Here's their definition of marriage. An intimate and complementing union between a man and a woman in which the two become one physically in the whole of life. The purpose of marriage is to reflect the relationship of the Godhead and to serve Him. Amen. That's from the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. That's right. That's a good definition of biblical marriage. So in the opening chapters of the Bible, when God creates marriage, we have these incredible descriptions. 
The man looks at the woman and he's been naming all these animals. And he goes, wow, at last, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. God says, leaving father and mother, cleaving to his wife, one flesh. And God looks at it all, over it all, and says, it's good. It's very good. What a glorious picture. Who would not want that? Who would not want that? When you look at the Bible's instructions about marriage, they are very simple. It's, it's not complex. You don't need a master's degree to figure them out. But they are impossible to follow if you leave out Jesus. And that's why if you notice, and I didn't take a highlighter, and please don't in one of our pew Bibles, but if you take a highlighter and go over every time Christ is mentioned in this section on marriage, it's probably more than the husband and the wife. If you take these verses in Ephesians 5 and you just say, okay, I'm going to try to live these out on my own strength, you will fail, and you will fail miserably because you have to know the context. The book of Ephesians has six chapters. The first three chapters deal with the indicatives, the truths, the prerequisites, the assumptions, the presuppositions. Then the last three chapters deal with the practical outworkings of those. If you don't understand and have application of the first three chapters, then don't try at home the last three chapters. You will not, it will not work. And if anything, it will be misunderstood and perhaps even destructive. If you've not received the love of God that's described in chapter 3 and in chapter 4, and then chapter 5 says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. You do not love your wife, husbands, in order to understand and get the love of God. First you understand and receive the love of God, then you love your wife. Because the main framework is this. We, believers, you are the bride of Christ. You are the bride of Christ. We must get that first. But we all want to go immediately to the rules. Okay, give me, give me five tips. Give me some things so that I can fix it. Give me some things so I can do. No, he doesn't start there. He starts not with you. He starts with God. He starts with Christ. We must consider the love of Christ. A few other introductory comments before we look at just a few applications of this. When you look at the Bible for human examples of marriage as far as being models to hold up, you don't find any. We can go to biblical examples of certain qualities. If you want to know about faith, we're told to look at the life of Abraham and how God dealt with him. We want to know about courage uh, and other things. You look at the life of David. If we want to know about knowledge of God's ways and, and church planting and evangelism, it's the Apostle Paul. But when we talk about marriage, you don't find any references here saying, think about this couple that lived. None. I believe the reason for that is not, is not that there were not good marriages, but that the ideal for the Lord is so high that the only analogy, the only example, is the relationship of Christ and his church. And that's the one that we have all through this. So what does this mean? Let's not return to traditional marriage. Here's what traditional marriage is through many parts of the world. I bought a book. First Presbyterian Church bought a book that's in my library. This thick called The History of Human Marriage. It was published in 1904. And I was reading on Amazon a, a, two months ago on all the different books on marriage. And I said, that looks interesting. It's not from a Christian or biblical perspective. But these sociologists and anthropologists studied all the cultures available to them around 1900 
they studied marriage in those cultures. And the main, <clears throat> the main differentiation is whether polygamy is allowed. That was it, in certain cultures. And in almost every case, polygamy was for agricultural and economic reasons, not for scandal and adultery. And that still goes on today. And so they studied all these different traditions. Now, let me tell you that based on that, from what I've read, traditional marriage, in traditional marriage, regardless of your clan or your tribe or your country, you marry for social standing. That's, that's probably the key reason. You marry for social standing. You married someone who is a social equal or better. You don't want to marry down. You marry up. You marry to benefit your family, your tribe, or your clan. Now, whether that marriage is arranged by your parents or whether you chose it or however that particular culture works, you marry primarily for financial security. You marry to produce excellent offspring and to give stability to the community and acceptance in the community. That's the way it is all over the world, still is today. That's what I'm referring to as traditional marriage. And then the, the reason not to get divorced is because it will run counter to all the reasons you married in the first place. So marriage in traditional settings has nothing to do with love, by and large, in most cultures. You won't love, you have a mistress. That's the way it is. Now, do you remember, and I could give you many, many examples in France about this from their past presidents, but Francois Mitterrand, he died in the 1990s. He was president of France. And at his funeral, there's a picture that was put out all over the world. And the picture, do you remember this? Who was in the picture? There was his wife. This was at the graveside. There was one person, and then next to her was the mistress. That everybody knew was the mistress, and next to her was the daughter, the teenage daughter, the illegitimate child of Francois Mitterrand, the president. And Western, they, they, they plastered this picture all over the world, and Western reporters said, oh, how modern, how chic, how European. The wife and the mistress, how modern. It wasn't modern. This is as old as civilization. This is the way it's been through history. This is the way it was in New Testament times. The wife and the mistress or mistresses. So the words were radical. So when I say let's not go back to traditional marriage, uh, I'm talking about biblical marriage. But so whether now in modern marriage, in modern marriage, love and romance and sexual attraction. Those are the reasons people marry. And if that relationship peters out, you get rid of that one, and you look for an upgrade. You know, you get a newer version uh, in your quest for love and romance and sexual attraction. Now, both of these, traditional and what I'm just going to call modern American, they share the same thing. They, they have this in common. It's all about you. It's all ultimately about what you think is best for you. Now, that's opposite of what the assumption is in Ephesians 5. Because the assumption in Ephesians 5 for Christian marriage is about Christ and the church. And marriage is all about Christ and the church. And so here's the marital imperative. If you want to summarize this chapter, it's this. Put your spouse's needs ahead of your own. And at that point, it's not traditional marriage and it's not modern marriage. It's Christian marriage. You put your spouse's needs ahead of your own. Why? 
And there's only one reason. Because your heavenly spouse has put your needs before his own. And that's what all this is going to build on that, that assumption. Your heavenly spouse has put your needs before his own. Okay, with those thoughts in mind, for the last few minutes, what are some specific duties to husbands? And I, I'm going to focus on the husbands and just have a word for women at the end. So Paul uses some key terms. Verse 25, he says, Christ loved the church. He loved the church. Love is Paul's key word for husbands. There was a book on Christian marriage written a number of years ago by Walter Trobisch, and he gives this definition of what Christian love, for a husband to love his wife. It means saying, you, you, you alone, I will give everything for you. I will give up everything for you, myself as well as all that I possess. I will love you alone. I will work with you alone. I want to guard you, protect you, and keep you from all evil. I want to share with you all my thoughts, my heart, all that I possess. I want to remain always at your side. Now, love like that would be a blessing to any family and to any culture. And that type of love is only learned at the feet of Jesus. So Christ loved the church, and his love, first of all, was unconditional. There's nothing about you or me that would be a condition that would meet the criteria for God's love. Romans 5, 8 says he shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not only did we not love him, we were heading in the opposite direction from him. When men, those of us that are married, or if you hope to be married, when you choose a bride you will want someone who is beautiful in your eyes. Now, I know beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but you will want someone attractive in appearance. Uh, but the Bible says Christ chooses a bride who is ugly. In fact, Ephesians 2 says she is dead. We are dead. She's not only ugly, she's dead. There's no beauty at all. I, I gave a lot of thought to this. I tried to think of a better term, but I couldn't. I thought, you try to think of nuances in the pulpit, they're a little acceptable, you know. But have you ever tried to be a matchmaker? I couldn't think of a better word for matchmaker. You've got these mutual friends that have never met, and you thought, you know, maybe they kind of, there might be a chemistry behind them, you know, uh, romance, love, those things I said a minute ago. But you, they, might like, they might like each other. And so you talk, say, hey, have you ever met him? And so you begin to describe him and say, he's, Look, I want you to meet this friend. He always, and you always start with what you think are the strong points, you know. I mean, he's just a great guy. He's smart, and he's real self-sufficient and responsible. And, you know, his parole officer thinks he's going to be a good I mean, you just kind of save, and as you go along, and they begin to ask questions, and you're kind of backing up, you're kind of backpedaling a little bit. And, and then you describe her, and, and it's just glowing. I mean, it sounds like per, the picture of perfection at the beginning, and then they ask some more questions, and, well, you know, it's not quite as... And so... The person begins to back up and get cold feet and says, yeah, I don't, I, I'm kind of busy that night. I don't think I really want to, to, to meet them. Well, let me, let me give you the adjectives used in the Bible for us, the bride of Christ. <clears throat> Idolaters, adulterers, unloving, unfaithful, thieves, covetous, children of wrath, indulging the desires of the flesh, living in the lust of our flesh and of our minds, haters of God, lovers of darkness rather than light, Jealous, hateful, oh, and dead. Sounds like Mr. Wright. Sounds like a bride you'd like to have, right? That's the description in the scriptures for us. And so when it says that God loves us, Christ loved the church unconditionally, he didn't see anything good in us. He didn't see anything attractive. There was no beauty in us. 
If you want the most, perhaps the most graphic picture of God's covenant love and how he chose to show it, go to the book of Ezekiel chapter 16. I think Eric referred to that passage last week, but I read it for the second week in a row. Let me tell you in Ezekiel 16, the picture is a God through his prophet Ezekiel says, talking of his people, us, the church, Israel in the Old Testament, I saw you like a young infant girl who had been abandoned in a field, set out to die like some cultures would do at that time. They did not want a female child, so leave her, expose her, and she'll die. And he said, I saw you there. The umbi- it's very graphic. The umbilical cord was still there, and blood was covering you. I took you, and I clothed you, I washed you, I cleaned you up, I fed you, and I raised you through your teenage years and describes how her body changes and so forth. And then I married you. I gave you these beautiful clothes and these jewels. Guess what you did? You immediately went and played the harlot. The beautiful clothes that I gave you, you raised your skirt to anyone who would have you. The jewelry I gave you, you formed into a sex organ that you could use to satisfy yourself. You think the Bible's boring? Read Ezekiel 16. And he goes, and the word over and over is played the harlot, played the harlot, played the harlot. That's the description of you and me. That's God's unconditional love. Do you know that love? Have you come to know Christ as your Redeemer? If you were a husband or a wife and said, Chip, you're a pastor, I'd like to get some marriage counseling. 95% of what I will talk to you about is about, do you understand God's love for you? No, not just this general God loves everybody. No, specifically, do you see your need? Do you see your condition? Well, I know I'm a sinner. Everybody makes mistakes. That's not what I'm talking about. Do you realize you're an adulterer and you're a whoremonger and you're a thief and you're a liar according to the scriptures that our hearts are dark? There is nothing good within us. There is none righteous, no, not one, and yet God has put his love on you. That's the beginning point. And that's what goes all through Ephesians 5 is Paul is saying, that's why verse 32 I think is the summary. This mystery is great, but I am talking about Christ and his church as he talks about marriage. Husband, your love for your wife is to be Christ-like in that it's unconditional. So when she doesn't look like a movie star or isn't always pleasant with a sweet demeanor or when she might be afflicted with a sudden disability or other difficulty, I am still to love her unconditionally. And you say, that's impossible. That's right. That's why I said you cannot do this on your own. I have to know and understand Jesus did not love me conditionally. He did not love me because I was so smart or holy or beautiful. He loved me because he chose to love me, and he does so unconditionally. Second part of God's Christ's love for us is he gave himself up for the church, it says in verse 25. It means his love is sacrificial. How did he sacrifice? Well, by becoming a man, he humbled himself and taking upon himself a human body. With his frailties, with his weakness, he was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. That led up to the ultimate act of him giving his life as the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. What Ephesians 5 is saying, Christ paid our dowry. He paid the price to marry us. And he paid it with his life. And he did not give himself up for her. He paid for a wife who hated him. She hated him. She despised him. She loathed him. And that's how we reacted to Christ. There's none righteous, no, not one. 
And so, husband, that is our model for serving our wives, completely contrary to our natural inclinations. Who would want to serve rather than to be served? We all want to be served. Y'all remember Adrian Rogers? Y'all remember listening? Still, I think I still hear some of his sermons on the radio. A pastor of the Baptist, uh, Bellevue Baptist, is that what it was in Memphis? And he died a number of years ago. And I was riding in the car over on Spring Street one day when he was still living, and I was listening to him on the radio. And, and in, in the sermon they had recorded, he told of a survey. He didn't document it, and so I'm just telling you this came from him. But in that survey, men and women had been asked a number of questions. These were married people, and had they, they were asked about their marriages. But what caught my attention was the question. They said they were asked, if you had it to do over, would you marry the same person? Kind of got quiet in my car. I'm listening. I think by then I was in the McDonald's drive-thru, but I slowed down. And he said that overwhelmingly the men surveyed said yes. But the women had a very different reaction. But their reaction was based on how one other question was answered. Let me explain. The women who overwhelmingly said no, they would not remarry the same man, they had the reverse answer. They would, they would have remarried him if earlier in the survey there was a question and it said, does your husband help around the house? And if he did, they were the ones that said, I'd remarry him. But when the answer was no, the vast majority of those women said, I would not remarry that man. Now, I'm not trying to make that trite. I'm trying to say, husbands, if we are to serve, Christ's love is serving. Now, I don't mean that every person's got to be a handyman, but that someone can say they help. They don't disengage. They don't have all their hobbies they're out doing all the time and leaving leaving unhelped what's happening at home. And I can tell you, our situation is different with a disabled child, but when Barbara goes out of town to see her mother in the nursing home after 36 hours, I'm one of those people that's been in a military experiment, you know, that I, that I don't know which way is up, I don't know which way is down, I'm not sure, I, I don't know what my name is anymore. And where does... Most of us will never be called on to actually give our lives for our wives. But we do that day to day in service. Okay, next. Christ's goal is to make the church holy. His is a sanctifying love. A holy person is one set apart. I am playing a part as a husband. I am to play a part in winning her devotion to Jesus. What is in view here is the husband is to see to his wife's spiritual growth and development. So there are questions I can ask. Husbands, you can ask. Husbands-to-be, you need to be thinking about this. Is my wife more like Christ because she's married to me? Or is she more like Christ in spite of me? Has she grown in her likeness of him? Do I help with her sanctification? Or do I hold her back? Is she a more godly person? Is she a more godly woman because... She is married to me. Am I helping her to love Jesus more or less? It tells us Christ will present the church as his radiant bride without blemish. He is cleansing us. The Bible says all of us one day will stand before God. And I don't understand the details and it's somewhat mystical, but in some way I'm playing a part in preparing Barbara for the time when she will stand before her heavenly groom to be presented to him. I have a part to play in that. 
So we have a part to play in the uh, makeover of our wife in preparation to meet Christ. I want to say a word to some who are unmarried here and you are very distressed about it. And the same word goes to some of you who are married and your marriages are hard and you are very distressed about it. All I would just say is this. Don't make an idol out of marriage and relationships. Don't make an idol out of that. You have a God who is your lover. If you don't have God who is your lover, you will make a God out of your lover. So you want God as your lover. You want to find your satisfaction in him, something no other person, married, unmarried, imaginary person can do. I have a friend who is a pastor. We were in seminary together. He married his college sweetheart, committed Christians, both of them. And he said after several years of marriage, he was a pastor, still is a pastor. By then, they'd been married for a while. They had children. And he said, I was destroying my marriage. What was it, through gambling or some kind of illicit pornography? or something? No, not any of that. He said it was a very acceptable form of idolatry. I made my marriage and my family my idol. Is that she was the wife I wanted her to be, and my children behaved the way I wanted them to behave. And he said the dangerous thing is that is a very acceptable idol in churches. And he said it took some counseling and where my wife revealed that she felt always a cloud of they were disappointing me, that they weren't living up to whatever my standards were. And he said, I was killing them, and I did not even know it. And he said, the only thing that saved it, that set him free from the idolatry of that marriage, in his own mind, was to know God as the lover of his soul, to go right back to Ephesians 5, to love her as Christ loved the church and to think about God's love for him. Okay, I want to end by giving you two ways to have a frustrated wife. <laughs> I saw that title of a section in one of the books I read. I'm not going to give you what they said, but I like the title. Here's how to frustrate your wife, men. If she's not, here are two things you can do to do it. First, fail to love her. Husbands, your number one priority is to love your wife to the extent that she doesn't doubt it. For most women, that means continually, practically, demonstrably, demonstrably, and eternally, or at least through this life. It need not be exotic, over-the-top. Forget the jewelry commercials. Women, you can talk to me later. But, I mean, it need not be that, well, I can't express love for my wife till I save up, you know, $2,000. No, just daily words, expressions. You're never too old. You don't outgrow this. <laughs> I heard this story of this older couple, and they went to bed one night. They'd been married for many, many years, and they were just about asleep. The husband about asleep when the wife went, Hey, hey, you remember? I was just thinking, you remember when we were real young? And, and every night before we went to sleep, you'd reach over and take my hand and hold my hand. And so he, being a loving husband, he reached over and he got her hand, and he almost dozed off. And then she said, Hey, you remember when we were younger? How every night you'd put your arm around me, and you'd hold me close. And so he, he put his arms around her, he holds her close, and... He's about to go to sleep. She said, oh, and what I really like, I remember you, you would nibble on my neck. And then he jumped up, threw the covers off, jumped out of bed. She said, where are you going? He said, well, I've got to go into the bathroom to get my teeth. <laughs> so we don't outgrow it. There won't be a time you say, well, I, you know, I told her I loved her when I walked down the aisle. Wasn't that enough? 
No, it's all through life. So how to frustrate her, fail to love her. Secondly, fail to lead her. Fail to lead her. Through the years, I've gotten to know many of you, and I, you've got to have some kind of entertainment side to human personality to be a pastor. You've got to, I mean, even in the midst of all this, we kind of have to be able to laugh at each other. And there are an amazing number of personalities here. And there are some women who are type A's. I mean, they are type A's. But I have never met a Christian wife who did not want her husband to be the spiritual leader. I don't care how driven they were, how task-oriented they were, or, or their personality. They want you to take the initiative. They want you to lead. And it doesn't take a lot men. When I counsel couples in premarital counseling, during that time, more often than not, I'll say to the guy, well, have you heard you're to be the spiritual leader in the home? Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, I heard that too growing up. Good. Have any idea what that means? Nope. I said, me neither. I grew up in a home and there was no spiritual leader. I, I didn't know what it meant either. It was, I was out of college, first time I ever saw anybody kind of like a spiritual leader in a family. And so I said, here's what it means. You take the initiative. She doesn't drag you to church. You're going to church. She doesn't force you to read the Bible or pray. You take the initiative to do those things. That's all it means, taking the initiative. It doesn't mean you know more. It doesn't mean you've been a Christian longer because often they haven't. Uh, it doesn't mean that you have a better handle on spiritual issues. It just means you take the initiative. Now, I've told you about my father, it, it, not, not in a while, but my dad died uh, about the age of 71. He was converted radically converted about three years before he died. Up until about 68, he not only did not want to talk about the Bible or Christianity, he scorned it and did not want me even bringing it up. He was hostile toward it. Then he's converted. That's an interesting story in itself, a miraculous story in itself. For the remaining time of his life, for about three years or so, every night he would turn the television off, tell my wife to get out the Bible they had right there, and she would read a chapter from the Bible, and then he would say, now tell me what that means, and she would explain it. My mother had been converted as a teenager. She had come to know Christ as a teenager. And more, well, several times in my years growing up, my mother said to me when we were talking about the things of God, Chip, I was never taught that as a Christian, you should only marry a Christian. She said, I married a non-Christian. I had not been taught otherwise. And she had great regret. She had great regret from the standpoint of Christian obedience. Though she loved my dad, they had a very strong marriage. They were faithful to one another. But that dimension was never there until the last few years of his life. So here's my mother who knew far more about the Bible, had taught in a Christian school, had been a Bible teacher in a Christian school, who had been in church for decades, who had been trained in evangelism explosion and all those kinds of things. And now here's this brand new baby Christian at age 68 saying, okay, let's turn the TV off. Jeanette, come in here. Let's do our reading before we go to sleep. And they'd sit on the sofa, she'd read, and then explain it. Let me ask you, who was a spiritual leader in that situation? He was. Not because he knew more, he didn't. Not because he'd been a Christian longer, he had not. Uh, he, he had had a stroke that impaired his reading ability, so he really could not even read. That was one reason he got her to read it. Uh, and then she would explain it. I would say I got to see a man become a spiritual leader in the twilight of his life. 
If you are sitting here, 40 years old, 50 years old, older, and said, hey, I'm an old dog, and this is a new trick, and I can't do it, it is not too late. It is not too late. And wives, when he does it, do not ridicule him. (laughs) Where's that been, big boy, for the past 50 years? Don't do that. Randy Pope and I were talking one day about marriage counseling and how there's situations we just throw our hands up and say, I have nothing to offer this. These people are just a continual fight. He told me of a couple that came in to see him at Perimeter Church. They got in a fight in his office. Finally, he said, look, I don't know. Why don't you just pray together? Y'all ever pray together? No, we never pray together. So they later told him they went home. The husband said, let's pray. The wife, after they prayed, said, you didn't do it right. So they got in a fight about that too, you know, about how he prayed. Didn't hear from him. So about two months later, they show up at church and said, God's done an amazing thing in our marriage. I'm not saying, I don't, I don't have any secret formulas. Do not take Ephesians 5 and say, well, if I do these five things, she'll do that. No, we do these because they're right, not trying to get a response from another person. If the response comes, great. If it doesn't, it's still right to do this. But take the initiative. I've got two more sermons, so I'm just going to abruptly end right here and continue on next week and the week after. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the fact that you saw us as the, uh, as the abandoned girl out in the field. Nobody wanted. And then once we had somebody that wanted us, we played the harlot. And yet you choose us still to be your bride. Lord, in a crowd this size, there are bound to be people that may think it's only natural that if we, we live a certain way, I try hard enough, and you'll accept me. If there is a God, then, uh, then I'll be good enough. And, Lord, you tell us right here in Ephesians, we're dead. We can't do enough because of our sin, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And so the only way we're made right with you is, is by grace through faith. Uh, not of works, lest any of us should boast. So may our trust be in Jesus and him only. May it rule in our families. May it rule in our church. May we walk humbly as we see our own hearts, but go to the cross where we know that we're forgiven. In his name we pray. Amen.